Welcome to the BP presentation to the financial community, webcast and conference call. I now hand over to Fergus McLeod, Head of Investor Relations. Hello and welcome to BP's second quarter 2008 conference call. My name is Fergus McLeod, BP's Head of Investor Relations. Joining me today are Tony Haywood, our Group Chief Executive, Byron Grote, our Chief Financial Officer, Andy Ingalls, Head of Exploration and Production, Ian Conn, Head of Refining and Marketing, and Vivian Cox, Head of Alternative Energy. Before we start, I'd like to draw your attention to this next slide. During our presentation today, we will be making forward-looking statements. Actual results may differ from these plans or forecasts for a number of reasons, such as those noted on this slide and also in our SEC filings. Thank you, and now over to Tony. Thank you, Fergus. Ladies and gentlemen, good day and welcome to our first half results for 2008. In a moment, Byron Grote will take you through the second quarter in more detail, but I'd like to start by highlighting some of the major themes. I said in February that 2008 should see operational momentum building across our businesses, feeding through into financial momentum in the second half of this year and into 2009. That is what we're seeing. Overall, we're heading in the right direction, and today's results are another step along that path. Recovery is particularly evident in the upstream, where we've been able to capture the benefits of a strong environment with rising underlying production, good cost control, and a number of key startups, all of which has resulted in strong cash flow generation. In refining and marketing, there's been important progress in restoring operational reliability in our US refineries, and we're also beginning to see progress on simplifying the business. However, the margin environment, especially in North America, is challenging, and this has limited the benefit to the bottom line. We're all operating, it seems to me, in interesting times. The world's economy is weakening, and the global geopolitical situation is delicate. The oil price continues to be high and volatile. Against this background, BP is making steady progress. Let me give you a summary of the numbers. Replacement cost profit for the first half of 2008 was $13.4 billion, up 23% on the same period last year. Earnings per share are up 26%. Unlike 2007, when several key assets were offline or delayed in starting up, our operations in 2008 can be better described as what I call silent running, and that's the way we intend them to stay. In our AMP business, this is delivering underlying production momentum, which is sufficient to more than offset the effects from production sharing contracts that we talked about in February. In addition, strong cost discipline is allowing us to capture more of the upstream margin. We're also delivering planned operational improvements in US refining, but into a weak margin environment. Outside of the US, our refining and marketing businesses are operating well. All of this is feeding through into very strong cash flow generation, with post-tax operating cash flow rising 25% to $17.6 billion in the first half, despite higher working capital requirements. This performance is underpinning the step-up in the dividend we announced in February. The oil and gas industry continues to be one of the best sources of income for investors, and I hope that is of some comfort in the current difficult economic environment. Today we're announcing a further increase in the quarterly dividend to 14 cents per share, 29% higher than a year ago. The sterling dividend is up 33% year on year. In summary, 
the first half of 2008 has seen BP make satisfactory progress along the course I laid out in February. We have the wind in our sails in the upstream, although in the downstream it feels more like sailing into a gale. Let me now hand over to Byron, who will go through the results in more detail. Thank you, Tony, and good day to those joining us on this call. As usual, I'll begin my review of the quarter with the trading environment. The table shows the percentage year-on-year -year changes in BP's average upstream realizations and the industry indicator refining margin for the second quarter as well as year-to-date. In 2Q, our liquids realization exceeded $109 per barrel, 76% higher than a year ago and 21% higher than in the first quarter. Our gas realization increased to $6.63 per thousand cubic feet, 49% higher than last year, and 13% higher than the previous quarter. Taking both oil and gas together, 2Q and year-to-date total hydrocarbon realizations were over 60% higher than last year. Compared with the previous quarter, total hydrocarbon realizations were 21% higher. Our refining indicator margin of $8.19 per barrel has increased compared to the previous quarter, but remained less than half the level of 2Q07. Year-to-date, it's down 50% compared with 2007. Actual refining margins have been negatively impacted by higher energy costs and product price lags, which are not reflected in our indicator margin. Turning to the financials, our replacement cost profit of $6.9 billion was 6% higher in absolute terms than 2Q07. Our profit including inventory gains and losses was $9.5 billion, $2.1 billion higher than last year. Non-operating items and fair value accounting effects had an unfavorable impact of $1.8 billion on the results, including $160 million for restructuring charges supporting the forward agenda. Adjusting for these items, the 2Q results represent the highest quarterly replacement cost profit ever achieved by the group. Operating cash flow was $6.7 billion, 10% higher than a year ago. Cash flows were adversely affected by the substantial increase in working capital associated with the sharp increase in oil and gas prices. As Tony just indicated, the $0.14 cent per share dividend announced today, which will be paid in September, is 29% higher than a year ago. I will now turn to the segments. In ENP, we reported a pre-tax profit of $10.8 billion per 2Q, up $3.7 billion compared with last year. The 2Q results included an unfavorable impact from fair value accounting effects of $370 million and a net charge of $2 billion for non-operating items, primarily from embedded derivatives associated with a number of long-term North Sea gas sales contracts. This accounting charge marks to market the difference between the various forward indices under which the gas was originally sold versus forward UK national balancing point gas prices. Excluding these items, our underlying result was $13.1 billion, compared with $6.8 billion in 2Q07. This reflects benefits from higher realizations and strong underlying production, which was partially offset by higher costs. 
reported production of 3.8 million barrels of oil equivalent per day, was broadly flat compared with a year ago. Adjusting for the impacts of production sharing agreements, underlying production grew by 6%. TNKBP contributed $1.35 billion to our 2Q result, nearly $700 million higher than 2Q07, reflecting higher prices and a greater benefit from lag tax reference prices. The 2Q 2008 tax lag benefit is around $500 million. As you may recall, price lags built into the calculation of Russian export duties have a favorable impact in a rising market and a reverse effect in a falling one. Our refining and marketing pre-tax profit was $540 million. This included a net charge of $260 million, mainly related to restructuring costs and unfavorable fair value accounting effects. Excluding these items, the underlying result was about $800 million, half the $1.6 billion level of a year ago. This reflects significantly weaker U.S. refining margins, which more than offset higher refining throughput from Whiting and Texas City and lower turnaround activities and good operating performance in other parts of the portfolio. Our fuels value chains, which comprise refineries, supply, logistics, and marketing activities, experience both lower sales volumes and flat or reduced margins as a result of higher fuel input costs and lower demand. Our international businesses, which include lubricants, chemicals, LPG, aviation, and marine fuels, continue to perform well in a challenging environment and have been able to recover higher feedstock prices. Despite the difficult environment, the segment is demonstrating considerable progress in underlying performance. Adjusting for changes in the environment, the underlying performance of the segment for the first half of 08 was around $600 million better than a year earlier. In other business and corporate, our second quarter underlying charge was $190 million. Relatively lower charges for the first half have reflected benefits of a number of one-off items and the effect of cost phasing. For the remainder of the year, we expect the underlying charge to be in line with earlier guidance. Turning now to cash flow, this slide compares our sources and uses of cash in the first half of 2007 and 2008. Operating cash flow increased to $17.6 billion, up 25%, and disposals provided a further $300 million. We use this cash to fund $9.4 billion of organic capital expenditure, up 23%, and $6.8 billion of shareholder distributions. We have rebalanced our distributions in favor of dividends in response to feedback received from shareholders. Dividends paid in the first half of the year were $5.1 billion, up 28%. Our net debt ratio was 19.4% at the end of 2Q, which remains at the lower end of our targeted range. In the current volatile and uncertain environment, we believe this strong balance sheet leaves us well positioned. Looking forward to the rest of the year, in exploration production, we expect strong underlying production growth. Entitlement effects under production sharing agreements will have an opposite effect, the magnitude of which will be determined by prices. 
The EMP turnaround season, which began last quarter, will continue throughout 3Q with major planned activities across many of our operations. This will impact volumes and costs, particularly from the higher margin areas in the North Sea and North America. In refining and marketing, we expect benefits from the continued increase in refining availability. However, current quarter-to-date refinery margins are some 60% lower than the second quarter of 2008. Higher energy costs and planned third quarter turnarounds will also impact refinery earnings, notably in the United States. Our marketing businesses are being impacted by the slowing of the OECD economies and margins compressed by rising wholesale prices. We project our second half tax rate on replacement cost profit to be in the region of 36% at the lower end of our February guidance and consistent with the average over the first half of the year. Overall, the second quarter results reflect further progress in our journey to restore our competitive performance. It's our determination to continue to build on the improving base step by step in the quarters ahead. That concludes my remarks. Now back to Tony. Thank you, Boren. I'd now like to stand back from the detail and look at our strategic progress, as well as a number of other topical issues, including, of course, an update on our joint venture in Russia, TNKBP. Back in February, I told you that our goal was to close the competitive gap in our financial performance against our key competitors. There are three key strands in doing this. First, restoring revenues. Second, reducing complexity and costs. And third, securing new assets and opportunities for the long term, even as we improve our near-term financial performance. In the first half of 2008, we've made good progress in all three areas. First, restoring revenues. Underlying production growth is up 6% in the first half of 2008. This has been sufficient to more than offset the impact of high oil prices on our production sharing contract volumes. We've started up four major projects in the first half of 2008. The Thunder Horse project in the Gulf of Mexico should be on stream by the end of the year as we promised. In fact, commissioning is already underway with early production from the first whale in Thunder Horse South. We anticipate bringing on further whales from Thunder Horse South through the remainder of this year, with Thunder Horse North starting up in the second half of 2009. I know Thunder Horse has had its share of delays, but it is on the very frontier of what our industry has achieved in the deep water. When it is up and running, it will be a powerful symbol of what BP can deliver. In US refining, both the Whiting and Texas City refineries have been restored to full crude processing capability, and we expect to begin to see the financial benefits of higher refinery throughputs in the second half of the year. Of course, the actual contribution will depend on refining margins which are currently depressed. In summary, our focus on safe and reliable operations is building significant operational momentum, which we expect to continue through 2008. The second strand of our plan to restore our competitive financial performance is what we call the forward agenda, to reduce complexity and costs. Again, progress is good. Our programme is ahead of schedule, and we should soon begin to see the first financial benefits from lower overheads. As we previously indicated, our aim is to reduce corporate overheads by between 15 and 20%. The programme of simplifying our business model 
especially in refining and marketing, is well underway with the establishment of six integrated fuel value chains, the focusing of our marketing footprint in aviation and in lubricants, and the shift of our US convenience retail operation to a franchise model. I would expect to see the financial benefits of these changes begin to feed through into our results towards the end of this year and into 2009. A key challenge for all international oil companies is to secure their future by renewing their portfolio. I'm glad to report that while we've been improving our operational performance, we've not lost focus on the longer term. We've had continuing exploration success in the first half, including the 15th discovery in Block 31 offshore Angola, the Sartis natural gas discovery in Egypt's Nile Delta, the North Shadwan oil discovery in Egypt's Gulf of Suez, the Kodiak discovery in the Gulf of Mexico, and two discoveries in the UK North Sea. We continue to gain new access to resources. We've completed the deal for the integrated oil, sands and refining joint venture with Husky. We've been awarded new exploration acreage in the Beaufort Sea in the Canadian Arctic and have agreed to acquire new shale gas acreage in the Arcoma Basin of Oklahoma. And we took the final investment decision and gained government approval of the Block 31 program development in Angola. We've also joined forces with ConocoPhillips to launch the Denali pipeline, which will carry natural gas from Alaska to the markets of Canada and the lower 48 states. In refining, we've recently taken the final investment decision on the significant upgrade of the Whiting refinery so that we'll be able to run 80% Canadian heavy crude. And finally, we've also formed a major joint venture to enter Brazilian bioethanol production giving us a significant position in arguably the world's most efficient biofuels industry. Taken together, these milestones are a testament to how our people are rising to the challenge of closing the competitive gap. I'd now like to say something about our joint venture in Russia, TNKBP, which some of you may have noticed has been making the odd headline or two over the last few months. The important thing to remember, and I want to emphasise this, is that TNKBP has been a highly successful joint venture over the past five years. It's been good for Russia and good for all its shareholders. As part of the current negotiation, doubt has been cast in some quarters over that track record. It's worth stating the facts. Since 2003, the year in which BP got involved, TNKBP has had the best performance in the Russian oil industry on virtually every key metric used by serious investors. The track record under the leadership of Bob Dudley is truly impressive. Take production. As this graph shows, since 2003, TNKBP has delivered the highest rate of organic growth in oil production of any major Russian oil company. This industry-leading production growth has not been delivered at the expense of renewing reserves for the long term. TNKBP leads here too, with an organic average reserve replacement ratio of almost 140% again the highest of any major Russian oil company. This reflects the benefits of the world-class technology and capability that BP has brought to the JV, notably in reservoir characterization and water flood management, seismic acquisition and processing, and drilling and completion technologies. And this commitment has not come at the cost of failing to distribute cash to shareholders. On the contrary, Distributions from 2003 to 2007 have totaled $18 billion, more than any other Russian company we know of. 
TNKBP continues to create value on other metrics too, whether you look at production growth, reserve replacement, finding and development costs, or return on average capital employed, the company has the best track record in the Russian industry. When the JV was established, we promised the Russian Federation we'd be a good corporate citizen, and TNKBP has fulfilled that objective too, making huge strides in health and safety, the environment, governance and transparency. The company has paid more than $70 billion in taxes and duties to the Russian Federation. Just a couple of weeks ago, the Russian Premier Vladimir Putin called for more investment in the future of Russian oil and gas production in order to sustain its growth. BP, as a shareholder in TNKBP, is committed to that important policy. Capital expenditure by TNKBP has risen threefold since 2003. The proposal for 2008 is to increase capital spending by a further 20%. However, not all of the other shareholders support this investment. Which brings us to the current debate over the future of the company. So why is BP engaged in such a public spat with fellow shareholders? As I've indicated, it isn't about performance. Performance continues to be excellent, as today's results show. In fact, in many respects, TNKBP is having its best year ever. Nor is it about greater state involvement in TNKBP. It is about control and about the future governance and direction of TNKBP. It's about whether to continue to increase investment in the long-term development of the Russian oil industry. It's a pretty lively negotiation as you're witnessing. The other shareholders want to tear up the agreement that they willingly signed in 2003. We're not prepared to do that and will vigorously defend our rights using all legal means at our disposal. We will not be intimidated by strong-arm tactics. We cannot be sure how things will pan out in Russia, but I can tell you that we're committed to finding a solution that's acceptable to all parties. Whether that is possible, we'll see. The next subject I'd like to address is how the global business environment is evolving for BP. I indicated earlier this year that we believe the era of cheap energy is over, at least for the medium term. Events are playing out even faster than any of us expected. The key factors in this are population growth and industrialisation in the world's developing nations, which are driving strong demand, and the very weak response we've seen on the supply side. There is not a shortage of hydrocarbon resources below the ground, but there is a problem above the ground in turning resources into production capacity. We see an increasing likelihood that oil and gas prices will be stronger for longer. Gas prices, especially in North America, have continued to lag behind oil prices. It will be a great benefit to BP if this gap narrows or closes, adding around two to three billion dollars a year to operating profit. In refining, high input prices and the weakening economic environment across the OECD have combined to create the opposite effect to that found in the upstream. As this chart shows, margins have fallen markedly in the last year, especially in BP's refining heartland in the US. Although non-OEC demand is robust, as I've mentioned, high oil prices and the slowing global economy have led to falling gasoline consumption, especially in the key US market. The majority of demand growth in 2008 is expected to be for diesel, 
and as a result, gasoline cracks are barely positive in the US and are negative in Europe. Moreover, the planned autumn startup of the Indian Jamnagar refinery will add significantly to global gasoline supplies. As a result of all of that, as I said earlier, we're sailing into a gale in our refining business. We cannot shape the business environment, but we can respond positively to it. So what are we doing? Well, we're treating it as an opportunity to grow the company. People sometimes ask me, where will the growth come from for BP? The answer's threefold. Firstly, increased activity in exploration and production. At a time when access to new resources is constrained, incumbent positions are increasingly valuable. So we're accelerating activity and looking for opportunity to deepen, especially in our key tax and royalty areas that allow us to capture price upside, such as our recent Arcoma Shale gas deal in North America. We're also focusing on the pull-through of resources in established basins, including the Gulf of Mexico and the North Sea. Secondly, we're closing the competitive gap through greater efficiency. Implementation of the forward agenda is on track, bringing with it reduced complexity and continued focus on cost and efficiency. It's good for our downstream business as it faces the challenge of depressed margins, and it's good for our upstream business, allowing us to flow more of the price upside to the bottom line. And thirdly, we're creating value in alternative energy. These businesses are increasingly economic without subsidy, and we will continue to provide visibility on our investments and the value created. I'd like to finish by summarising our strategy again. It is a simple one. We have a very strong upstream portfolio with a growing reserve and resource base. Our challenge is to convert that strong base into growth in production and cash flow over the next few years. I'm confident that we'll do that. Our downstream business has been doing badly in the past few years, while many of our peers have been doing well. We're working to turn it around. Our costs have become uncompetitive in some areas. This is a major opportunity for improvement and we're grasping it with both hands. We have a significant and unique growth option in our alternative energy business. Our challenge is to expose that value for the benefit of BP shareholders. This is the plan that I want you to judge us by. It's early days, but so far we're on track to deliver it. Speaking for myself, I'm excited about the next few years and I know my team is too. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. We'll now be delighted to take your questions. If audio participants would like to ask a question, they may do so by pressing star 1. To cancel your question, please press the hash or pound key. If you are listening on the web, please submit your question using the web question facility. Thank you, Operator. And I think the first question comes from T-Pan at Morgan Stanley. Uh, good afternoon, T-Pan. Hi, good afternoon. Um, just a couple of technical questions. Uh, and then a question on the alternative energy business. Um, just in the upstream, uh, I was wondering if uh, Andy could give a little bit of colour in terms of cost inflation that we're uh, encountering in the first half of this year and, and what he sees going forward and sort of splitting out uh, production taxes. And if you could comment perhaps on where you see sort of DDNA per barrel moving. Um, secondly, um, I know it may be difficult to give sort of volume guidance for this year, particularly given sort of variability around uh, PSA effects. But I was wondering where you thought that may be at $120 oil 
and perhaps a little bit more colour in terms of what volumes you think uh, Thunderhorse will be producing at the end of the year. Uh, and lastly, just on alternative uh, energy, um, in February we talked, uh, I think you, you, uh, BP talked about um, the possibility of crystallising some of that value uh, uh, that you see in the alternative energy business. I was just wondering how that was progressing. Thank you. Uh, okay, thanks, T-Pen. Let's go first to Andy, and then we go to Vivian. So, Andy. Okay, a uh, long series of questions there, T-Pen. But start with uh, with cost inflation. I, I think on the CapEx side, it's certainly running at sort of t uh, ahead of 10%, probably 10 to 12%, and we're probably managing to offset around 4% uh, of that. I think on, on, on the cash cost side, um, I think we actually had a good quarter in, uh, in, in the second quarter of this year. If you look at cash costs, uh, second quarter of 08 versus second quarter of 07, um, they were just up um, 4%, which I think is significantly below inflation. I think inflation on the cash cost side is probably uh, around 8%. So again, we're, we're beating that by, uh, by 4%. And I think that's really part of what's given uh, a, a good upstream uh, delivery in this quarter. Uh, we've delivered not, not only the, the volume growth, but we've hung on to the margin, I think, through real discipline around costs. And that is, I think, the first early shoots of the forward agenda actually hitting the bottom line, all of which is, uh, is, is good news. You know, and there have been some offsetting factors, as you said. Production taxes, the biggest hit we've had is... Um, is in Alaska, which is probably running at about $500 million of RCOP uh, per quarter. So, you know, despite those effects, we've still managed, I think, to, to really hang on to the, uh, to the margin. So that gives you a sense of both, of both the, the cost impacts and the production tax impacts. On, on volume guidance, you know, I, I sort of unchanged, I think. I'm not going to re-forecast the year. I, I think it's, it's too early to do that which was, you know, in essence, flat at, a, at 100 bucks. All I would say is that, you know, the first half has, has actually been, uh, been pretty good. Um, you know, the oil price has probably been around, you know, what, 110 headline number, and, and production growth has sort of been about sort of, what, half a percent. So, you know, oil price slightly higher than we'd anticipated, um, but we've actually delivered, you know, slightly more volume than we anticipated. So, you know, I think we've had a, you know, a good start to the year. Um, you know, hopefully we can continue that in the second half, but there's a lot of stuff needs to happen. The turnaround seasons need to be done well. Uh, we have some remaining ramp-ups, but, you know, a good start to the, uh, to, 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 to the year. Um, finally, on, on, on Thunderhorse, um, again, I, I think a, s a similar sort of sentiment. Um, you know, the, the objective was to get it up and running by the end of the year. We've had a, an early win uh, with getting one well on earlier than we, than we thought. And that's been, uh, been helpful. It's allowed us to uh, fully commission the, uh, the top sides. And the performance has been good. We've had uh, production efficiency since startup in the, in the high 90s, which is great. You know, that, that's you know, world-class performance for a new facility coming on. Uh, the well is, is running at over 40,000 barrels a day, which again is, is great. Um, the reservoir is performing as we would expect, which is an important early signal. So, you know, I, I think we're in, we're in good shape. Um, so what needs to be done now is that there's more wells to be brought on from uh, Thunderhorse South, uh, four wells, and we'll get three or four of those uh, going by the end of the year. It'll depend on weather patterns. And then we have Thunderhorse North uh, coming on in the second half of 2009. Uh, of and you, you can work out by the well capacity here, you need sort of six to eight wells to, uh, to fill the facility. And, you know, we'd anticipate, you know, getting there by, uh, by the end of 2009. 
So um, the ramp up is uh, is going uh, is going well, and I think we've made real progress this quarter on on, on understanding the facility and understanding the uh, the reservoir. Uh, T Pan, uh, the, the, this Byron, I just wanted to add uh, a, a little bit to Andy's comments about about production taxes. If if, if you look at Note 5 on the stock exchange announcement, we, we, we lay it out in detail there. And if, if you refer to that, you'll see that production taxes are, are up $2.5 billion over the first half of the year. Now, that's driven pr primarily in, in uh, Abu Dhabi and in, in Alaska, reflects the increase in prices and uh, the change in legislation that, that we saw in Alaska over the course of the last year. Thanks. <coughs> thanks, Baron. Viv, Alternative Energy. Yes, thanks. Um, so since February, when we uh, gave some information which allowed people to get a, a rough equity value for, for the businesses, we have been looking at a range of different options to, to give more transparency. Um, and we've looked at uh, IPO options, we've looked at uh, partnership options, we've looked at other options. We've decided that at this point, we will keep the businesses inside BP, that these are businesses that are important to us, uh, that they have great growth opportunities and potential. And so we've decided that uh, these are businesses for the BP portfolio and we have no plans to IPO at this point. Uh, so in order to give the, the transparency on value, we'll continue with the approach we, we started in February and give information, probably next February, uh, give information so that so that you can all value the businesses from uh, standard industry multiples. Thanks, Great, Steve, thank you. Uh, next question comes from Neil McMahon at, uh, at Bernstein. Hi, um, a few uh, questions. Uh, maybe the first one, uh, looking at uh, why the strategic uh, move towards the, the Woodford Shale um, in the States, and, uh, and maybe just walking through why now, uh, since it seems to be a sort of late response to a, 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 an already developed uh, shale play. And secondly, uh, looking at the TNKBP situation, um, what can you really do uh, in the current uh, environment? Uh, is it possible to withhold dividends uh, for the group? And uh, how far away are you from arbitration? And, and could that actually lead anywhere? Thanks. Okay, we'll get Andy to talk about the Woodford Shale, which I have to say I don't think is late, but uh, we'll let, let Andy say, talk to that, Neil, and then I'll talk to TNK. Yeah, Neil, on the, um, let's talk about shale. I think it's sort of like open the aperture up, up slightly uh, and look at the total sort of non-conventional gas position. If you sort of wander out to uh, to 2020, I, I think it's a, it's a reasonable expectation that, that non-conventional gas will be around 50% of the U.S.'s um, production. Now, clearly, we have a strong position in, in tight gas in our Rockies position, well-established. We have a strong position in cold bed methane in, in San Juan. And really, we've been working over you know, the last year or so to figure out you know, how we build an equivalent distinctive strong position in uh, the emerging shale plays. Um, we have an established position in, in the Haynesville through our current acreage uh, holding. And um, as you look across the, um, the tier one uh, shale plays, um, the Woodford was an important addition to ensure that we had the scale and the materiality. 
And so that's why we, we, we did the deal with, with Chesapeake. I think, you know, it's sort of up to two TCF uh, in the Woodford, and I think our Haynesville play as yet to be appraised is probably about double that size. So you can see we are really building materiality in that, and I think therefore have three strong positions in each of the, the unconventional plays uh, in the U.S. And it will allow us, I believe, now to have confidence that we can grow uh, the U.S. gas business, which is an important signal going forward. So if you look at the real strategic tenants to the uh, Chesapeake play, it's about ensuring the portfolio is complete. Um, it's about uh, establishing that incumbency in an area we, we already operate in. We already operate in the Arcoma, where the Woodford Shale is, so it's a, uh, it's a direct bolt-on. And, and clearly, it's an analogous piece of, of technology to our existing North American and conventional plays. So I think a huge amount of synergy, and um, I believe will, 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 will prove to be a very good acquisition. Uh, Andy, any plans to take, uh, to take this technology overseas? It seems relatively little has been done in Europe uh, with using this technology um, in the European mainland uh, on top of that in the U.S. Yeah, I, I'm not. Um, I, I'm probably not as strong a, a, a for it in the European uh, mainland. I think there are lots of challenges in operating there. But well, what I would say is that we've taken that technology and applied it in Oman. That was one of the key distinguishing features of our bid in Oman. It was tight gas, very similar to the uh, the uh, the plays that we see in in, in North America gas. So I do think the, you know the there is real opportunity to uh, leverage our North American uh, technology on, on non-conventionals, and that's what we're looking to do. <coughs> okay, Neil, um, on TNKBP, I mean, I think all I can say really is that uh, we clearly have rights under a shareholders agreement, which we intend to defend robustly using all legal means at our disposal, exactly what and when uh, we will determine. And I think the second thing I'd say is that we intend to do everything we can to ensure that our fellow shareholders cannot play by one set of rules in Russia and another on the international stage. Uh, and I think it's sensible that I leave it there. Okay, thanks. Thanks, Neil. The next question comes from the United States from Robert Kessler at Simmons & Co. Robert. Robert Kessler, are you there? Ah, we seem to have lost Robert. So next question comes from the internet, and it's a question about Brazil. Um, how does BP feel about the deep water and pre-salt potential in Brazil, and do we see ourselves becoming involved, which we've not been hitherto? I think this is a question for Andy. Okay. I, I think, you know, clearly um, there's been initial um, success in that pre-salt play uh, in our series of exploration um, discoveries. Um, we were clearly not involved in those on a well-by-well -well, uh, basis, so I think it would be inappropriate for me to, um, to comment on the absolute potential there. But clearly an important new play emerging. And it's an area where, you know, we believe we have something to bring in terms of, uh, of technology. Um, we clearly have um, deep uh, skills in, in seismic through, through salt in our Gulf of Mexico. It's been a hallmark of, of our exploration success success there and clearly we have skills in, in, in the deep water development. So we, we continue to talk to Petrobras. Um, we would like to participate in the uh, forthcoming uh, bid rounds should they be licensed and we believe we, we can be competitive. So yeah, it's great to see success there. Uh, you can't be in every play uh, but this is certainly one I think for the future. Right, so back to the telephones and John Rigby from UBS. Um, 
there's two questions, one on the upstream, one on the downstream. Um, on the downstream, um, I recognize it's a lot of moving parts, so uh, maybe you, you can't tell me what the profits foregone are, but is it possible just to give some insight into what additional costs you're still uh, incurring um, on the Texas City site, uh, either because you can't optimize your crude or uh, in terms of the contractors that are still on there that you're having to pay that ultimately those costs will go away. Um, and the second is on, on TNKBP. Um, and I guess I'm not going to be the last one to ask a question on this. Um, I'm thinking back is you were able to sell Erdmutneft fairly easily because I think the structure of TNKBP is that all the assets are in separate subsidiaries. It is one solution ultimately if you both have a view, a positive view on Russia ultimately, but you know, fairly clearly can't work together, that you just break up the joint venture and then you can choose your own partners for each of the assets that you retain. Okay, let's get Ian to give you an update on Texas City and then I'll come back and deal with TNKVP. I think I'm playing sweeper today. <laughs> John, thanks for the question. Um, you're right, there are a lot of moving parts. I think the best way to get at this would be the following. Byron indicated that... Uh, our underlying performance improvement in the first half in 08 versus the first half in 07 was approximately $600 million. While there are a number of moving parts in there, including much better performance from our international businesses offset by the rest of our marketing, where we've had a, um, a challenging time with demand, effectively what that means is that most of that recovery is due to Texas City and Whiting's recovery, and most of that, therefore, is to do with the recovery of the US system. And Texas City has made a significant contribution to that. And that's, uh, that's how I'd like to leave it. I think on TNKBP, uh, John, I, I would not rule out, uh, I would not rule anything in and anything out in terms of what a final solution might be here. Uh, uh, clearly, uh, the route that you've suggested is one that we can think about. It would ultimately, I'm certain, require the okay from the Russian authorities. Okay. Thanks, okay, John. thank you. Thanks, John. Our next question comes from Mark Yanotti at Merrill Lynch. Good afternoon, uh, Mark. Afternoon, gentlemen. A um, couple of questions. I'm afraid another one on TNK. Um, now that you've taken um, all of the BP um, special advisors out of country, do you, do you think this will have any impact at all um, on volumes in the short term, and if not the short term, on, on the medium term? Um, and then just on, on the, the, the business itself, can you make some comment on um, Block 31 and um, the reserves you think you might be able to put on the books this year from that? And then finally on price realizations, it just looks like your crude price realizations relative to market prices were swinging around quite a lot in the quarter. The UK looks very strong. US looks quite weak. Can you make any comment on um, what we can expect uh, third quarter around the current prices okay, we have. So usual rules apply. We go to Andy for Block 31 and upstream realisations, and then I'll deal with TNKBP. Yeah, hi, Mark. Yeah, on, on Block 31, I think it was just standing back. I think this was an important announcement because it, what it does allow us to do now is to develop the 15 discoveries um, we have in, in Block 31 uh, as a series of, uh, of projects now where... It's sort of design one and, and build many. It's the same approach as we used in Azerbaijan, uh, in Trinidad, and now we're taking that across to Angola. 
you know, we, we've sort of spent the time front end loading this to enable us to do that with Sonagol. It, it's good for the country as a PSC holder, and, and it's good for us. So I think it's, it's, um, it's been a successful process. The first project off the, off the block is, is, is PVSM. Um, I'm not going to give you a, a, a reserves number, but it would certainly that we, we would be booking the um, our share of uh, of PVSM in uh, in 09 now that we've reached FID on that project, and then as we get to FID on each of the projects that follow uh, down in the southeast, probably next, then to the northeast, and then probably one more, we'll book reserves uh, as we go. But clearly, you know, as we look to the reserves replacement ratio, keeping that um, uh, production line of projects moving forward uh, is key. So the first one will be in uh, in 09. It's 25% uh, of share, and I'd say it's a typical uh, scale uh, Angolan uh, project. And you can figure out what the reserves are as as a result. Thanks, Andy. Um, as far as the specialists were concerned, Mark, they were largely focused on. Uh, major new developments for the future and, and ensuring the delivery of a pipeline of well locations for beyond 2008, in some cases beyond 2009. So I think the impact uh, short run will be uh, very modest. It's important to recall, of course, that we still have significant XBP presence in TNKBP. So the COO is an X. BP executive, the head of the downstream is an ex-BP executive, the head of technology and exploration is an ex-BP executive, the treasurer is an ex-BP executive, so there's a lot of, there remains a lot of uh, presence in TNKBP of BP. However, it's clear that, you know, the specialists were doing uh, something which we felt was important, which was creating the growth options for the future, not for the next year or two, but for the, t the period beyond the next couple of years. And uh, if they're not present, then the growth prospects beyond the next year or two will clearly be impacted. And Mark, finally, I think you had a question about realisations, uh, yes. specifically the fact that UK realisations, I think, look quite strong relative to markers, and US liquid realisations look perhaps weak relative to markers. The technical reason is uh, timing of liftings from specific fields in the UK North Sea and in the US um, NGL pricing, which is included in the liquids realisations. But I can talk you through all that offline uh, if you'd like to do that later. Thanks. Uh, next question comes from the web. It's really a combination of several questions, which are asking for an update on plans for the Whiting refinery. OK, let's go to Ian for that. Okay, um, I saw a couple of questions there. And the, basically, Whiting, uh, we announced this week we're going to the next phase of implementation and execution on the upgrade of Whiting. As you recall, this is converting the refinery to a predominant slate of Canadian crude. One element of the, the question was uh, how committed are we to it uh, in light of the margin environment? The answer is we remain very committed to it uh, for the simple reason that the main benefit from this investment is actually feedstock advantage and location-led rather than changing the product slate of the refinery. Uh, the other reason is that the quality of this investment competes very well with other investments across BP. Um, I think the only other things I'd say about uh, Whiting is that uh, the air permits and the water permits have been received and we've been through quite a lengthy process around that. 
And the other part of the question on the screen says, would BP entertain a long-term supply agreement to secure feedstock for the Whiting refinery uh, now that the FID on that project's been reached? Uh, clearly, the, we will look at all aspects to strengthen this investment. We see this investment as uh, providing considerable strategic advantage due to the scale and location advantage of the refinery. If there were the right um, opportunity to tie supply to this refinery, of course, we'd look at it. Great. Now back to the telephones. Uh, we've got a question from Brahim Karim from uh, Lehman Brothers. Actually, Fergus, it's Lucy um, from Lucy. Lehman's. Um, uh, uh, Byron, at the one key stage, you indicated there was about a billion dollars pre-tax of sort of exceptional sort of um, uh, perhaps potentially non-recurring sort of items, some of which have recurred in the second quarter in terms of like the tax lag effect for TNK. Could, 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 could you summarise what you think you know, those, those exceptional pre-tax profits might have been for the quarter? I mean, were there any exceptional trading profits? Or? Uh, I think, thanks, Lucy. Uh, there really are two specific items which have contributed to higher 2Q results than are likely to be repeated in 3Q and 4Q. The, the first, is, as you've already noted, is the $500 million benefit from lag tax reference prices in TNKBP. And the second is the phasing effect within other business and, and corporate, which is about another $200 million. So we calibrated as a total of $700 million of, of, of items that, uh, we'll, let's, let's put in the bracket, of, uh, unusual in in the second quarter. As, as far as trading goes, the, the overall trading contribution in the second quarter was within the, the normal bounds. It was, a, it was a bit weaker in oil and products, which impacts refining and marketing a bit stronger in gas and power, which uh, impacts the EMP results. But, but overall, it's generally in line with expectations. Thanks. Could, could I also have a follow-on question? Um, obviously, there's been a lot of focus in terms of TNKBP. Um, are we likely to get an update in terms of how the negotiations are proceeding with Kavitka? Um, <clears throat> the, the negotiations uh, with Kavitka sort of remain in uh, uh, the deep freeze, frankly, whilst we sort out the other issues. Uh, and as such, the legal entitlement Kavik to Kavitka remains with TNKBP. And TNKBP continues to be the custodian of that asset and to carry out a relatively modest work program to take it forward. And could I ask why, why does the ongoing sort of debate with AAR impact the negotiations with Gazprom? Well, because everything is linked to everything else, I expect. Right. <laughs> Thanks, Lucy. Next question is from the United States from Jason Gamble at Macquarie. Jason? Thank you very much. I wanted to ask for some incremental commentary on the Arcoma Shell acquisition in three specific areas, the first of which is uh, the ease of integration of these assets with your existing uh, U.S. mid-continent portfolio. I believe you already have a pretty strong management team in place in the mid-continent. Uh, the second would be the pace of investment in development, uh, investment in development in the Woodford, uh, and rather this would be incremental to the 10-year, $15 billion investment plan you have for the U.S. onshore. And then third, I was hoping uh, that Andy might be able to talk a little bit about the differences in technology of this shale play versus your existing non-conventional gas position, and specifically horizontal drilling and multiple fracture stages. Okay, thank you, Jason. Let's hear from Andy. All right. Uh, treatise on that's, shale, please. Shale, please, yeah. Um, 
Well, I think the, your, your first question about integration, I think, is, is key. Um, one of the reasons why we're attracted to the Woodford is that we have an existing uh, operation there in Arcoma. We have people on the ground. We have the, uh, the operation centers to do this relatively easily. Uh, we're picking up three rigs initially from Chesapeake, and then we'll be bringing in our own drilling machines to build that up to, to seven. Uh, over the near term, which is the current uh, rig rate they're operating with. So I actually believe the, the integration of these assets uh, is, is, uh, is relatively easy. In terms of the pace of investment, this is incremental clearly to the current spend in, uh, in, in North America. Um, I believe the, um, the subsurface is well described in, in terms of drilling locations. And actually, the issue really around the ramp up of, of pace will, 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 will be around the, uh, the pace at which we bring in uh, the additional drilling equipment and ensuring that we use the same approach as we've used elsewhere in North America, which is to generate you know, long-term rig commitments so that we get stable uh, rig crews, we get stable equipment, and we get efficiency um, from it. And then in terms of, um, of technology, you're right, it is all about, um, well, it's three things. It's being able to image well, uh, which is about seismic, which we, we, we have, we believe, you know, real um, in-depth knowledge of. Um, so your well locations are, are optimized. It, it is then about horizontal drilling, again, which we're using very effectively in, in the tight arenas. And then clearly it, it is about fracking. So. Um, we believe we have the depth of technology and maybe additional technology in the way that we integrate the subsurface beyond s s some of the common players, some, some of the current players. And, um, you know, we're, we're taking all of that clearly to the Haynesville as well, which um, is as yet unappraised, but we believe has uh, probably, you know, more than double the um, potential of the, of the Woodford. So, um, you know, it, it actually plays to our strengths. You know, we've got the technology, uh, we have the operating footprint, and um, we clearly have the business efficiency from operating at scale. Thank you, Jason. And then back to the web. Next question is about TNKBP. Under what circumstances might you change your accounting treatment for your interest in TNKBP, and what could be the changes? <coughs> Sounds like one for me. Uh I suppose I should, we should start by being clear that uh, no one, not even our fellow shareholders, have questioned our ownership rights to 50% of TNKBP. So it is just a question of how we choose to account for the 50% interest. It's not about economic substance or value or about the flow of cash to BP. Uh, since 2003, I think as most of you have known, we've equity accounted for our 50% interest in TNKBP. And what that means is we include our share of TNKBP's earnings in our upstream results each quarter. I suppose the alternative would be to account for our interest on the basis of dividends paid as they're paid. I think the reality is that in practice, both accounting treatments, if I'm not mistaken, would have been broadly similar in terms of the impact on our reported earnings over the last five years as the dividends from TNKBP have broadly tracked our share of earnings. So no matter what the accounting treatment uh, we choose, I think that the important point is the economic substance of our 50% ownership of TNKBP and the entitlement to 50% of the dividends would be unchanged. And of course, under any scenario, we'll continue to provide supplementary information on TNKBP's production as, and reserves, as we have done 
since we started it. So I, I don't really see this as an issue. Back to the telephones, and we've got a question from Ed Westlake at CSFB. Ed, are you there? Yeah, good afternoon. Uh, actually, two questions, both North American EMP-focused. Um, just following on on the gas side, obviously you're, you're generating more cash flow than you're using this year. Oil prices help. Your gearing's at the low end of the range. Peers are pushing into gas, BG Origin, Shell, Duvernay, Arrow, and you've done a bolt-on as well. EMP space is down 20%. I mean, what are the barriers to the simple view that big oil, including yourself, should, should be even more assertive in North American gas if they are going to converge longer term? That's the first question. And the second question is in the Gulf of Mexico. You've had some recent successes, which is great, um, but um, maybe you could just point us to the, the next hub developments or, or um, exploration targets that you think could be material to uh, Gulf of Mexico production, say, in the 2012 timeframe beyond. Thanks. Thank you, Ed. Over to Andy. Well, you know, I don't disagree with your uh, your thesis here, um, which is clearly why we did the deal with um, with Chesapeake and the Woodford. Um, you know, we, we will continue, I think, to look at opportunities to increase our resource capture in areas where we have um, you know stable uh, fiscal regimes and we have good margin, and we have the ability to add distinctive value either through our incumbent operating positions or or our technology. So, and I agree with all of that. Um, we clearly have de demonstrated that we can be very efficient and effective in, in North America. We built the scale. Um, I'm happy with the portfolio we have in terms of our balance of conventional, non-conventional. But I believe you know we probably could continue um, to deepen in areas where we can pull in those those synergies. So without you know talking about Pacific targets, we are going to continue to look and see if we can actually create value-adding uh, additions. So um, I don't disagree with, with your push. In the, in the Gulf of Mexico, um, as you said, you know, we've, we've clearly been focusing on, on getting the, the current um, fields under development up and running, making progress on that. I, I think the, um, as you look at the, the future hubs now, um, I think the, the, the Kodiak discovery w was important. It, it's adjacent to, uh, to tubular bells, and without getting into the specifics of what a development concept would, uh, would look like, we, we clearly have materiality, I think, between those two, um, two discoveries. And I would see a, a hub emerging from uh, either the, uh, the Kodiak or, 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 or T-Bells. And we're focusing now hard on that to ensure that we bring that forward at, at the right pace, um, but obviously with the right front-end loading. And again, a lot of that is about standardizing the design and bringing all the lessons uh, learned that we have from um, Atlantis and Thunderhorse. And the other area I'd point you to is the sort of western, uh, western flank of, of Mad Dog, uh, adjacent to, to, to the Puma discovery. Uh, we're in the early stages of the appraisal of Puma, but I think I can see you know, further development of the western flank of Mad Dog potentially linked to the, um, an early development of, uh, of Puma. Um, and maybe some concept of, of sort of um, a development through appraisal. How can we accelerate that? So those are the two big near-term things which would be production in, that, in the early part of the next decade. Thank you. Thanks, Ed. Uh, Irene Hamona from Exane. Irene. Uh, good afternoon. I had a question, uh, firstly, on the downstream. Uh, can you give us some guidance on the opportunity cost of the Husky deal in Q2? In other words, what refining EBIT did you give up uh, through that deal? And then my second question is on CapEx. I realize it's a little bit early, but uh, uh, you talked about uh, CapEx inflation running at 6 to 8% for yourselves in the upstream. 
Obviously, you are launching Angola, Block 31, uh, the whiting FID is given. So uh, what order of magnitude higher capex should we be looking at for 2009 versus this year on the basis of these announcements? Thank uh, thanks, Irene. Let me just deal with the capital one, which is um, our guidance for 2008 remains unchanged, 21 to $22 billion. We'll update you on what we think for 2009 when we get to February. If I can ask Ian to talk about the foregone EBIT in Husky. Thanks, Irene. I mean, first of all, I don't want to talk about the foregone EBIT other than to say that in the, with the state of U.S. refining margins, it's somewhat lower than it would have been before. Um, the, 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 the second thing just to point to is Toledo is a pretty small refinery, um, 130,000 barrels a day. Of course, we're going to expand it. Uh, in the scheme of things, there's a small impact on our on-stream availability in the U.S. as a result of this, but it's actually it's relatively second order, as I say, especially given the state of the margin environment at the moment. Okay, Thanks, thank you. Thanks, Irene. And now back to the U.S. and to a very patient Mark Gilman at Benchmark. Thanks. Uh, I had uh, a couple a couple things for uh, for Andy, and then and two for Byron, if I could quickly. Uh, first, Andy, can you give us an idea of the development cost for the Block 31 project in Angola and also uh, an idea of the benefits associated with the uh, intended reduction in uh, Russian minerals taxes uh, to kick in January 1st of next year, whether that's deductible in terms of uh, Russian overall income taxes. Uh, for Byron, if I could, um, I'm a little bit puzzled by the UK R&M earnings number, the replacement cost number, very large given the asset base. And then also, I guess because I didn't have enough to do this morning, I got to reading the note on the fair value accounting uh, adjustments, um, and it struck me that you're measuring those adjustments based upon management's estimate of what performance would be, which struck me a bit curious in light of the fact that one could quantify those effects just on the basis of the adjustment itself. So I was wondering why you chose that route. Thanks a lot. Okay, Mark. Um, on Russian tax, I'm afraid we can't provide you with any greater clarity at this moment. We'll wait and see what actually transpires in Russia. Um, would you like to say anything about, uh, not the development costs, Andy, but the development in Angola? Yeah, Mark, we, we don't disclose, you know, the individual uh, sort of capex estimates for the individual projects. Um, you know, all I would say is that, um, you know, the, the opportunity, I think, to bring a standardized approach will allow us to um, be very cost competitive in terms of the development there. It, it's going to be competitive with what we're doing in the Gulf of Mexico and competitive with what we're doing uh, elsewhere in the world. Um, and I think the real issue that we've learned is if you're going to drive a capital, capital efficiency into a project, you, you, you've got to standardize the approach. So we'll, we'll, we'll sort of be designing this uh, uh, development once, and we'll, we'll, we will be producing three to four hubs uh, around it. And let's just hear <coughs> from Byron now what I would definitely say is a specialist subject, the treatment of fair value accounting under IFRS. I think the easiest way to, de to describe this, Mark, is that the, the, the reference that, that you've pointed out is, is merely the way in which we're, we're describing the fact that by doing fair value accounting effects, by, by isolating these, we're trying to ensure that, that we've established symmetry between the physical volumes uh, which are treated 
uh, under IFRS in one accounting uh, method, uh, which is basically historical, and, and the derivatives, which are, are being hedged uh, uh, directly associated with those, which are marked to market. So all we're trying to do is, is to ensure that these asymmetric effects are, 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 are pulled out because management's view is that, that the underlying performance of the various business segments is best looked through uh, without those timing uh, distortions that would, would otherwise occur under IFRS. Uh, I, I think uh, uh, Ian will say something more about uh, UK R&M, but I, you, you need to remember that, that our, our underlying presence in the UK and in refining marketing is, is now relatively limited, and there's a number of, of uh, corporate adjustments, uh, uh, timing factors here that, that impact a relatively modest amount of income. So you should expect it to be highly volatile, but I'll pass it over to, to Ian. Yeah, I think just in addition to what Byron said, which really re with regard to interregional recoveries, um, we the business we've got left in refining and marketing in the, in the UK uh, is basically three things. We've got a, a pretty strong uh, retail business. We have one of our main hubs for the um, acetic acid business, and that's been doing pretty well this year. Um, and then the third thing is we've got our, a big center for our uh, global fuels business, particularly aviation, and those have been doing quite well. And then lastly, some of the supply optimization around those have done well. So those would be the other factors. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Mark. And now back to an equally uh, patient, Michele Della Vigna at Goldman Sachs in London. Uh, if I could ask two questions. The first one would be about PSC. And if you could give us an idea of um, what kind of, how much you, you expect the PSC effect to increase by the end of the year if we remain at uh, the current level of oil price. And then the second one is um, with uh, Henry Hub, where it stands um, at the moment, um, why for your Alaskan gas development you're not considering um, an LNG development instead of doing a pipeline to the, um, to the lower 48? Okay, Mihaly, let's uh, back to Andy for PSCs and Alaskan gas. What I'd do is refer you back to, uh, Michele, back to the, um, the view we gave you at the, um, the strategy review in February, which showed the uh, impacts of PSC effects uh, going forward. And in particular, what we know, the basic message was, with that was that near term, there are some big effects. You know, we've talked about 6%, um, 200,000 barrels a day. Uh, be, the big impact in uh, in 08 um, and 09, as you go through some profit trans changes on some of the, the big PSCs that we have in Azerbaijan and in Angola. But of course, once you've gotten through those, you get to more of a, a steady state where the effect becomes much more moderate. And that was the shape of the curve that we showed you in um, in February. And I think our experience through, through 08 has been very much um, in line with that. Um, in terms of the best way to, um, to develop uh, Alaskan gas, I think there's been a huge amount of, uh, of analysis of this over many, many years, probably too many years, um, and uh, of the schemes that have been uh, reviewed. Um, I think there's a common agreement amongst the, um, the various parties that uh, a gas pipeline is the, uh, is the best way to, um, to develop it, and that's the scheme that we're pursuing. And uh, we believe um, now that we've announced uh, the, uh, the approach with ConocoPhillips, created the uh, Denali uh, gas line company, uh, we're making real progress this year. 
and look forward to uh, proceeding through to um, FERC approval. Thanks, Michaeli. Now up to Scotland, to Jason Kenny at ING. Hi there. Uh, just three short questions. One for uh, Andy. Uh, could you give us an update on um, Australia LNG and uh, the outlook there? Uh, one for Byron. Could you give us an update on the outlook for share buybacks in the second half, 2008? And then uh, one for the sweeper. Uh, have you considered or, or could you envisage swapping your TNKB stake for other assets elsewhere in Russia? Okay, Jason, thank you very much. Let's start with uh, Andy. Okay. Um, in terms of the upstream Australia, I think your question is really about the you know, progress on the fifth train and uh, of Northwest Shelf and, and when would that start. Um, it, we know it, it was forecast to start in the second half of, uh, of 08 and uh, obviously it's a non-operated asset for us, but we have no reason to believe that the project isn't going to be delivered against, uh, against those timelines. So in, in terms of the sort of you know, operational side of it, um, it continues to, um, to run well. Um, you know, looking forward, we, you know, we have our share in, uh, in IO, IO Jans. Um, you know, we're continuing to, to look at ways in which we can work with the current proposed schemes, and we look forward to securing the value from, uh, from that acreage. So, you know, the portfolio in, uh, in Australia and LNG is strong, and it's clearly um, a good piece of business at the moment. Byron. We don't provide any, any forward guidance, uh, Jason, on share buybacks. You, you can look at, at what we've done over the first half of the year. It's been about a, a billion dollars a quarter. If, if you remember back in my remarks in, in February, I said that this uh, is, is a swing element. We've now uh, re rebalanced our distributions much more towards, towards dividends. And to the extent that, that there are opportunities to make uh, acquisitions, as, uh, as we've uh, identified recently in, in the upstream, small, smaller but uh, important strategic acquisitions will do that. And to the extent that there is, is cash that is, is not necessary for for those activities or uh, ongoing ones, uh, then we'll continue to distribute it uh, in the form of share buybacks. But it'll be a considerably uh, lower amount uh, going forward than it was uh, prior to 2008. Thanks, Baron. Um, I, I think uh, what I'd say, Jason, is that I, I would rule nothing in and nothing out, as I said earlier. The, the only point I would make is that we have a great position and we are intent on defending it robustly to ensure that we preserve the value that we've created for the BP shareholder. How it transforms itself in the future, only time will tell. Okay, thanks very much. Thanks, Jason. And now on to Colin Smith at DKW. Colin, are you there? Yes, good afternoon. Um, question on the US downstream. I wonder if you would be willing just to give us a bit of a, a view about what was actually what the contribution between the refining part of the business and the rest of the business in the U.S. was, and maybe comment about how far, if at all, you thought the margin structure you're experiencing now effectively reflects the impact of waiting in Texas City coming back as very large assets in that market. Thank you. Thanks, Colin. Let's uh, hear from Ian. Thanks, Colin. Well, maybe I'll also tie that to a question on the, on the web, which just talks a bit about turning around U.S. downstream while we're on it. Um, I, I think, first of all, uh, not prepared to split um, 
the refining and marketing contributions, not least because a fundamental tenet of what I'm trying to do is to run the business as an integrated business. Uh, in parts of the U.S., notably the West Coast, it's actually impossible to make sense of that split. So I'm not prepared to do that, Colin, I'm afraid. As far as the margin structure is concerned, um, there's actually a bunch of things playing in here. Uh, not least the interplay between very strong distillate demand around the world, which is causing people to run refineries very hard, even though the gasoline that they're producing as a byproduct actually hasn't got a particularly strong demand profile right now. I would say that's the biggest driver of the weakness in U.S. refining margins, but clearly there's also the fact that uh, miles driven are 2% down year on year, and it's a, the first time we've seen that in an awful long time. So I think the reasons for the margin structure today are rather more fundamentally linked to what's going on in the product markets rather than the return of our two refineries, although clearly the return of a number of refineries does have an impact on this. Just if I may turn to the question on the web. Um, firstly, I'd just like to comment on turning around downstream in general. Uh, the turnaround program that I indicated to you in February is on track. Uh, we're clearly, though, battling low refining margins. The principal drivers of uh, returning uh, performance to U.S. downstream are firstly restoring revenues, and uh, the majority of Texas City's economic capability uh, is effectively restored. We have one train of the Resid Hydro Treater back up, a very valuable unit, another one coming up in the next few days. Um, the second is clearly continuous improvement in refining performance and efficiency. The third, which uh, Colin provoked, was obviously running the business in an integrated way. The fourth is uh, U.S. convenience retail, and actually getting out of operated convenience, and that's going very well. Uh, despite the economic downturn, we're confident in our ability to franchise that business. And then fifthly, uh, we've got to improve the overall back office efficiency of the business, as I indicated in February. And last but not least, it's investing in competitively advantaged positions with a focus on manufacturing, and that's what the Whiting Investment's all about. So uh, it's on track. A long way to go, but uh, we're making quite a lot of progress. Thanks, Colin. And we're now down to the last three very patient callers. And the first of those last three is Neil Morton at MF. Neil, are you there? I am indeed. Thank you, Fergus. Um, just one question and one clarification, please. Um, the question is on Denali. Could you perhaps give us uh, an update on your progress in potentially bringing in other partners to the project, whether it be that Exxon, a pipeline company, I think even Gazprom has been mentioned. Could you also clarify the process? I understand the Trans-Canada project has been approved by the lower house in Alaska. If it then gets Senate approval, is that it? Or are you still intending to uh, proceed in parallel? And then just the clarifications on other business and corporate. I think Byron talked of phasing. Are you still t sticking to the full year guidance of $1.5 billion or are you implying that from Q3 onwards, you go back to the sort of quarterly run rate of $375 million? Thank you. Great. Thank you, Neil. Andy, Denali. Yeah, on, uh, on Denali, Neil, um, um, yeah, we believe that, that Denali, uh, the joint venture company between uh, BP and, uh, and, and, and ConocoPhillips, has ultimately the best chance of ensuring the line is constructed for a couple of you know, big reasons. I think the first is that 
the companies do have the ability to undertake a large project of this scale. It is, it is huge. It requires significant financial strength. It needs Arctic experience and it needs an understanding of Canada. And we believe we bring all of that to, to, to the project. And the same thing is that actually as shippers, we, we, we are incentivized to control, control the construction costs, reduce cost overruns, which have blighted, I think, previous um, uh, pipeline projects in, in Alaska. So therefore, we believe the, the industrial logic is, is strong. Um, you're right, the, the lower house in Alaska has supported the AGEA process uh, with TransCanada. It has yet to go to the, to, to the upper house. Um, but irrespective of that, uh, we, we are continuing because we believe we, we are uh, the best vehicle to uh, execute the project. And we're making good progress. As you know, the, the, the company's been announced. Uh, we've announced the CEO. We've announced some of the senior executive team underneath him. We've got 125 people working in the, uh, on the project as, as, as employees of the company and the contractors. We have the field work going on. 75 people of those are, are in the field. And we have pre-approval uh, of the uh, approval of the pre-filing process for uh, for FERC. So those are all, you know, very strong uh, indications of our intent here to um, to see this through. In terms of other people joining us, uh, I think you need to ask uh, Exxon that question. Uh, they've been invited, um, so you need to ask them. And in terms of other pipeline companies. Um, you know, clearly, um, you know, TransCanada is, is one of the pipeline companies. So, you know, there are others. Um, we'd have to, uh, you know, examine, I think, if, if, with TransCanada, their uh, potential withdrawn partner liabilities. So um, we, we'll look at, a, 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 at all options. But um, all I would say is that um, the partnership between BP and uh, COP is strong, and we're, we're making good progress. Thank you, Andy. Byron, OBC. Uh, Neil, thanks for asking for the, the clarification. Uh, and you're, you're exactly right in your conclusion. The, 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 the net charges in other business and corporate uh, tend to be volatile on a quarterly basis. They really are impacted by a, a, a huge number of, of factors. The, the, the first half charges have benefited from a number of these things and as, as well as, as cost phasing. So when we, when we look into the, the second half of the year, uh, although it's uh, impossible to know with, with certainty, we think that the original guidance, the, the pace of that, which would be $750 million on a, on a half-year basis, is, is the right call. And if you, if you look back to 2007 and you compare the, the, the charges for the second half versus the first half uh, for the, the reconfigured uh, OBNC that we have today, uh, you'll see that uh, the, the charges in the second half were, were more than twice those in the first half. So uh, I think that, uh, the, that, uh, that uh, the guidance that, that we're providing, which is to, to go back to the original indication, but uh, no, no catch up in the second half, uh, is the right one. Okay, Thanks, Brian. Great. Thank you. Another final question from the United States Jack Moore at Harpswell Capital. Good morning, good afternoon. Uh, so I wonder if you could give a little bit more color on uh, cost inflation upstream with respect to any either regions or particular segments that you see um, prices rising at a rate higher than what you anticipated. And then secondly, I was wondering if you could comment on <clears throat> BP's appetite for um, more significant M&A, perhaps uh, upstream or, or integrated oil? 
Okay, Jack, uh, let's go first to Andy on cost inflation, then I'll do the M&A question. Yeah, John, you know, I, I'd actually sort of, you know, this is sort of self-evident points, but I'd say that um, clearly we're seeing the most cost inflation areas where there is, you know, the most shortage of, of supply. You know, I think in particular in deep water, you'd, you'd pick out a couple of areas, um, you know, subsea construction as, as we start to uh, expand, I think, globally, the activity set there, whether it be in, in Angola, whether it be in the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, we're seeing uh, certainly uh, sort of supply challenges there. And I, and I think, you know, the industry is responding. There is new equipment uh, coming through and, uh, and being built. So I think the, um, the pacing of activity in the right way, the right design approaches to try and get rid of some of the uh, supply uh, bottlenecks is key. But certainly I'd say that's probably one of the hotter areas. And, you know, and we continue to see, you know, um, strength, I think, in the deep water rigs, you know, the fifth slash sixth gen rigs. You know, BP's particularly well positioned. I think we've, we've, we've taken some long-term contracts and we have a rollover of those. So we are sort of mitigated to some degree, I think, from the very high rates that others are experiencing today and sort of taking a long-term view of that market has, has helped us. But if I pick out a couple of areas for ourselves that are probably, you know, seeing slightly stronger inflation than the number that I talked about, those would be the two. <coughs> Thanks, Andy. On Jack, I think on M&A, major M&A is not on our agenda today. I, I think uh, we've got plenty on our plate to get what we've got running properly. Uh, and frankly, we struggle to see value in the things that uh, we may have looked at. What I would say, I think that small scale M&A, expanding our existing footprint or creating new opportunities for the future is very much on our agenda. And uh, we will continue to pursue those sort of opportunities uh, as appropriate. Great. Uh, good answer, and uh, congratulations on a good half. Thanks, Jack. Thank you, Jack. And the very last question comes from David Klein of Davian Amro. Good afternoon. Uh, I believe that Mr. Haywood made some remarks about um, demand destruction in the OECD at the press conference this morning. I wonder if you can just share your thoughts on, on that subject with us. Yeah, I, I think, you know, it's varying by market. It is, of course, our experience, which is very much an OECD experience, and we're seeing uh, between 5 and 10%, typically around 5%. I don't know whether Ian wants to add anything by way of a bit of regional flavour. Thanks, Tony, David. Um, yeah, I mean, as Tony says, <clears throat> we've been seeing 5 to 10% in most of the markets, the big markets we're in. It's been around 4 to 5%. That's true in the US. It's true in Germany. Uh, we've seen slightly lower volumes, actually, than that in the UK. So generally, in OECD, we're seeing volumes down. By contrast, and I admit we're not significantly in the non-OECD markets, but firstly, um, where we are in, in Australasia, we're seeing quite strong demand, but that's actually driven by the mining sector, as a large sucking noise is heard from China. And uh, in terms of China and India themselves, um, my data says that gasoline and diesel demand is, is running at about 5 um, to 10 percent uh, up on last year, probably nearer the 10 percent. So when you take 10 percent in non-OECD and you take 5 percent down in OECD and recognizing that although non-OECD is only about 35 million a day of oil demand out of the 85 or whatever, it's a net increase despite these dramatic reductions in the OECD. So 
the world continues to be tight product. It's mainly driven by diesel, but we are seeing demand destruction uh, in the OECD in the main. Thanks, Ian. I, I think we're now going to draw it to a close, ladies and gentlemen. I, I just want to make a couple of remarks. Uh, I believe that BP is very much on track with the plan that we laid out in February. We have strong operating momentum across all of our businesses, and we look forward to giving you a further update in the third quarter. In the meantime, I'd like to wish you all a very safe and happy summer break. Thank you all very much.